Hello and welcome to another episode of Bups' Dharma Lounge. A time and a place to sit back, relax, maybe pour yourself a drink, where we can investigate all things Dharma. Hi, I'm Bupsa Frank Jude, and I again welcome you to Bupsa's Dharma Lounge. Uh, before we get into our topic this episode, Buddhism as the Middle Path or the Middle Way, um, I would like to thank people who are supporting the podcast. Um, there are many ways you can support the podcast. Very importantly, uh, it doesn't cost you anything. And you don't get bothered by any kinds of emails or anything else, but if you hit that button that says subscribe, that will be a kind of nod to the gods of the algorithm, and perhaps more people will have access to this podcast. So please subscribe. Um, if you can also make a comment, maybe ask questions, we can make this more of a conversation amongst the listeners. There are people listening from as far away as Korea and the Middle East. It'd be really great if people just joined in. That'll be, I would love it. I get these emails, but, and I do love that, but um, a more engaged um, relationship with the podcast would be very welcome. Also rating, if that's possible. If you're listening to this on Apple or Spotify, I believe you can give five-star ratings. So we'd appreciate that. And then of course, there's the practice of dana, and if you're not familiar with dana, I think it was the second episode. You scroll down, you'll find it. It's um, it is the first of the paramitas or the perfections, and it's a beautiful um, non-capitalist, I might even say anti-capitalist form of sharing, um, and no amount is too small. So anything that you offer is greatly appreciated. And um, therefore, I would like to personally thank those of you who have sent in any Donna since the last episode. And this includes Gabion, Sally Weber, Ilchu Andre Talbot, Chatra, Sandy Greenberg, and Priya and Lundquist. Thank you all very much for your constant support. So, as I said, I'm going to talk about Buddhism as the middle path of the middle way, and it's been known as this for as long as there's been Buddhism. In fact, it's how the Buddha referred to his own path in the very first teaching, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the uh, turning the wheel of the Dharma, right? The first teaching he gave, uh, and it's written there that, these are the, this is a quote, let me tell you about the middle path. Dressing in rough and dirty garments, letting your hair grow matted, abstaining from eating any meat or fish, that does not cleanse the one who is deluded. Mortifying the flesh through excessive hardship does not lead to a triumph over the senses. All self-inflicted suffering is useless as long as the feeling of self is dominant. You should lose your clinging involvement with yourself and then eat and drink naturally, 
according to the needs of your body. Clinging attachment to your appetites, whether by deprivation or indulgence, leads to slavery. But satisfying the needs of daily life is not wrong. Indeed, to keep a body in good health is skillful, for it supports the mind in staying strong and clear. This is the middle path. Now, the Buddha had lived a life of indulgence. He was the privileged son of a Raja, which um, at that time was more like a, a chieftain of a clan, in, in this case, the Sakya clan. Um, and he lived that way for at least 20 some odd years before he set off to become a yogi. And then after six years of extreme austerities doing tapas, where he would expose his body to the elements, he would uh, fast, um, depriving himself, he reached almost collapse. He was on the verge of collapse, if not death, when he decided that indulgence wasn't the way, but neither was such, um, such deep asceticism. So he decided to bathe and eat and build up his strength and his stamina. And he did that in order to practice meditation until he eventually broke through to his full awakening into a Buddha. And from the very first teachings of what became a 40 year teaching career, all the way up to his death, he taught the middle path. And so ever since Buddhism has been known as the middle path. Now, in some cases, it is some kind of a, a middle way between two extremes, but it's not some tapioca like uh, very nondescript compromise. It is really an alternative way. Um, sometimes it is an alternative way by transcending the duality between two positions. Now, even to this day, there are yogins in India who practice uh, extreme forms of renunciation. They're said to follow the path of tapas. The word tapa, tapas means heat. But the Buddha is reminding us in his very first talk that whether we abstain from or indulge in our appetites, though obviously both look very different, underlying both is the same quality of fixation on the self. And it's this fixation that traps us in the round of dukkha. And here by dukkha, I mean dissatisfaction, uh, stress, pain, suffering, all of it. Now, in a teaching from later in his career, he had a student who was a vena player. Now, a vena is like a, a lute-like a lute stringed instrument. And the Buddha, consummate teacher that he was, addressed Sona, that was the monk's name, um, and his experience of having been a musician. So he used something from Sona's own life as a way of getting him to understand the middle path of practice. Now, it, it's not said exactly what Sona was doing, but I believe he probably was um, either sitting in meditation in a very collapsed, overly loose way, right? We all know that position where you're kind of collapsed, maybe the head's forward, and it just looks like you're nodding out, right? On the other hand, maybe he was sitting in what 
Zen teachers often refer to as the stone Buddha, right? Where there's this very rigid, uh, from the outside in holding kind of posture, right? In fact, I remember it not once, but twice um, at uh, a particular monastery that I would practice at sometimes, um, one of the yogis having to be carried out because his legs were locked in the cross-leg position. They literally picked him up off the cushion, took him outside of the zendo in order to um, pry his legs loose. Right? So you don't want to sit like a jellyfish all collapsed in. You also don't want to sit like a stone statue in this rigid, strident effort. So whatever the case was, Sona was doing one or the other. And so the Buddha asked Sona, what happens when you tighten the strings of the vena? And Sona replied, the pitch increases. Okay, and if you continue to tighten the string, the Buddha asked, well, if you keep doing it, eventually the string will snap. Hmm. And so what happens if you loosen the strings and you, you, you make them more slack? Sona responded, well, then the pitch decreases, it gets flatter. And what happens if you continue to loosen the strings? Well, then the string will become so slack that it won't make any sound at all, Sona replied. Okay, so how do you make the strings sound harmoniously? The Buddha asked. And Sona replied, by making them not too tight and not too loose. Ah, that is how you should practice meditation, the Buddha pointed out. Now, we were all raised on fairy tales, right? And so many who hear this story assume that once one is not too tight and not too loose, then we just live happily ever after. As if not too tight, not too loose was a state that you attain and then it just sustains. But any string player will tell you that not too tight, not too loose is always in a relationship to circumstances. For instance, if you tune your instrument, let's say it's a guitar, right? If you tune your guitar in a room that's 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 30% humidity, right? You're all nice and tuned, not too tight, not too loose, very harmonious. And you go into a room that's 90 degrees and 75% humidity. Well, you're going to go out of tune. You're going to have to retune to that circumstance. And this is the nature of life. We are always having to adjust to the ever-changing circumstances we find ourselves in. In this case, in this way, there's no such thing as balance, right? We talk about balancing, right? You can't attain a state of balance and then that's it. But we can continuously balance as an action. We're balancing. And it's a dynamic process. Right? And it's a relationship to the ever-changing conditions and to maintain the relationship over time, constantly balancing to the ever-changing circumstances itself requires vigilant mindfulness. So it's a mindfulness practice just to stay tuned to the situation and respond in a way that's not too tight, not too loose. Again, 
This is important to understand because otherwise the middle path may be misunderstood as equivocal, right? But properly understood, we can think of it as upright, centered, and neutral. The middle path requires us to investigate and to penetrate into life circumstances with as unbiased an attitude as possible. And for that, I believe any contemporary mindfulness practitioner needs to educate themselves about metacognition. Right? And this inquires critical thinking. Right? But metacognition reminds us, and we can learn about in order to be alert to biases that we all have, such as the confirmation bias or the availability heuristic. Right? Once we are aware of such biases, we can compensate and correct for them. If we're not aware of them, then they just take over. To see clearly so that we can respond skillfully and wholesomely to life's ever-changing conditions, we need to position ourselves in a stable, neutral, upright, unbiased attitude. Now, those who are listening or watching who are familiar with the definition of yoga asana in the Yoga Sutra may see some similarities here. From this stable yet relaxed, grounded position, we can then move into an investigation of our situation from various angles. We can analyze what we discover or uncover about the situation and thus develop clear comprehension of the situation. This is an aspect that is sometimes ignored in the contemporary mindfulness movement. Uh, the Satipatthana, the sutta where the Buddha really goes into deep explanation of mindfulness practice, we are practicing mindfulness in order to develop clear comprehension. And then to find a creative and skillful response to the situation. So acceptance isn't resignation. We accept a particular situation. We may accept it as something that needs to be changed, right? And then we respond rather than get caught in our reactivity, right? And it's in this way that we liberate ourselves from our conditioned, biased reactivity and empowering ourselves, enabling ourselves to move toward a more skillful, creative response. The middle path represents the distinct perspective and way of Buddhist practice that is more common to humanistic naturalism than to other religions. Buddhism lays great emphasis on human thought and action and their relationship to the environment, society, and culture. It's concerned with the relationship between the changing conditions of the environment, society, and culture, and the thoughts and actions of the individual and the groups that they belong to, as well as the relationship between these thoughts and actions and their consequences. So it's a huge network and matrix of causes and conditions. Basically, it is a deep dive investigation into causality. This is when that is. With the ceasing of that, this ceases. Through this investigation, 
the Buddha came to offer two main characteristics of the middle path, which he presented in his first discourses. The very first two laid out everything that he developed and built upon for the 40 years of his teaching career. First, there's the teaching of dependent origination, and second, the Noble Eightfold Path, or the Path for the Noble. Dependent origination depicts the contingent nature of phenomena and the process of causality, how phenomena and situations arise and pass away based upon myriad causes and conditions. The Noble Eightfold Path shows the way of practice as a response to dependent origination, or as it says in the Samyuk Tagama, the Tathagata avoids the two extremes and talks about the middle path. When this is, that is. With the arising of this, that arises. Through ignorance, volitional actions or karmic formations are conditioned. When this is not, that is not. With the ceasing of this, that ceases. Through the complete cessation of ignorance, volitional activities or karmic formations cease. Now, periodically, I will introduce and discuss the eight limbs of the middle path uh, as components of the threefold yogic training of the Buddha. Right? So the eight limbs are broken up into three trainings. There's the ethical training, there's the training for meditation, and then there's the wisdom training. And over time, I hope to investigate each of those. Meanwhile, um, maybe you can see in your own life uh, where the middle path is located in a particular situation. Uh, ground yourself in that and then keep on walking. Thanks again for joining me, Bupsa's Dharma Lounge. Uh, remember again, you can support this project in myriad ways. Easiest right now, click on that subscribe button. And hopefully you will share this with others and join us again in future episodes where we investigate all things Dharma.